You are listening to ReachMD, XM157, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to The Revealing Retina, presented by the American Retina Foundation, the charitable arm of the ASRS, the American Society of Retina Specialists. I am your host, Dr. Roy Levitt, chairman of the American Retina Foundation, and joining me today is Dr. Cliff Ratner. Dr. Ratner is a graduate of Columbia College of Physicians. He did his residency at the Harkness Eye Institute, and he did a two-year retina fellowship at the Wilmer Institute at Johns Hopkins under Dr. Stuart Fine and the late Ron Michaels. Having been in practice of retina for the past 25 years, he was my partner at Southwest Retina Consultants in El Paso, Texas for 12 years. And then he returned to New York to found the retina practice of White Plains, where he continues to work. He was also a charter member of the American Society of Retina Specialists. Our show today talks about wet macular degeneration, and the theme of the show is the times they are changing. 30 years ago, treatment of wet macular degeneration basically was a heart-to-heart discussion with the patient, an arm around their shoulder, and a referral to a low vision specialist. This usually took a lot of time in the schedule, as much of the treatment was psychological support of an untreatable condition. Today we have a treatment that works, but it takes as much or more office time now to deal with the same condition, and it has changed the way the office runs. Cliff, I know that you were involved with the initial laser treatment studies while at Wilmer, and I'd like for you to talk a bit about how you have seen treatment of this disease change over the years. Well, thank you, Roy. I appreciate the opportunity to talk with you today. Yes, I was involved in a somewhat peripheral way when I was at Wilmer because that was the center of what was called then the MPS, or macular photocoagulation study, running from 1980 to 82. That study proved the value of photocoagulation in treating wet macular degeneration. Uh, The study was actually stopped early because the Data Safety and Monitoring Committee reviewed interim results and found that there was a clear advantage to treatment with laser. You're correct in saying that before that, there really wasn't much that one could do at the time for wet macular degeneration except provide supportive psychological environment for the patient. But afterwards, those lesions which were treatable, meaning that they were outside the the fovea, were treated with laser with usually uh, good results. Sometimes retreatments were necessary, but in general, the results were better than with no treatment. The important part of this is that, as you know, Wet macular degeneration is the leading cause of legal blindness in the United States in patients over 60. At that time, we felt we had the first viable treatment for wet macular degeneration. And then where did we go from there? Well, that remained the standard of care for quite a long time, and there were some uncontrolled studies or even suggestions that other treatments might work, such as interferon treatment and even thalidomide as the years went by. But those treatments were shown to be ineffective in further randomized studies. Finally, in the year 2000, we had a pharmacologic treatment, which was called PDT. That was photodynamic therapy. Uh, It involved a drug called Visudyne, which was given in an IV infusion. And then the retina was subjected to 83 seconds of a special wavelength cold laser. And that activated the molecule Visudyne or vertiporphyrin, to bind with certain cells within the neovascular vessels and release free radicals, which essentially destroyed those vessels. And this was a big breakthrough. It was approved by the FDA and became the standard of care 
from 2000 until approximately 2004. And at that point, there were other treatment modalities in the works. There were indeed. We first used a drug called Macugen, which was injected directly into the vitreous. This drug was on the market for a relatively brief period of time because it was rapidly superseded by the off-label use of a drug called Avastin, which most physicians are quite familiar with because it's approved by the FDA for various types of malignancy, first colon and now lung and breast. Avastin is a monoclonal antibody, and Genentech is the manufacturer. And Avastin's been around for quite a while, but the intraocular use of Avastin really hit its stride in uh, the summer of 2004. What happened there is that a very smart uh, fellow by the name of Phil Rosenfeld, a professor at Baskin Pomeroy Institute, presented the results of his own initial pilot study injecting very small doses of Avastin into the vitreous, and this drug then penetrated through the retina and stopped the growth of the abnormal blood vessels. This drug was far more effective than any other treatment we had ever had. And in fact, in follow-up studies, it's been shown to be highly effective. Now, the irony of this is that there is a competing drug called Lucentis, which is another monoclonal antibody, which is a fragment of the Avastin molecule, also manufactured by Genentech. And Lucentis is the drug that's been FDA-approved. And in clinical studies, it's been shown to either preserve or enhance vision in approximately 90% of patients who receive it. Uh, These patients all have wet macular degeneration. These are startling results because they're so good, and especially in comparison to the rather poor results we were getting with previous therapies. There's a big debate right now among retinal specialists as to whether Avastin should be used, which is still off-label, or whether Lucenta should be used. And the debate basically centers around the relative cost. An injection of Avastin can be obtained for approximately $50, and Lucentis per injection costs close to 2000 These drugs frequently have to be used on a monthly basis, so the cost to both society and to individual patients with Lucentis is many times greater than with Avastin. The drugs anecdotally seem to be more or less equivalent in terms of efficacy, and there is a head-to-head trial being organized now, but those results won't be available for at least a year or two. You know, I think that anecdotal information is good to know, but I think controlled trials are essential. Would you comment on that, Cliff? Well, I couldn't agree with you more, and in fact, it was uh, Stuart Fine, who is the chairman now at Shanghai Institute at the University of Pennsylvania, who made this point very clearly when he was running the macular photocoagulation study, which was, as I said, stopped prematurely, so to speak, because the results were so overwhelming in favor of laser. There were 16 primary investigators, and all of whom were the top retinal specialists in the country. And when he made the phone call to each of them, before he gave them the results, he polled them individually and asked them which way the study had come out. In other words, was laser helpful or was it harmful? Fifteen out of the 16 stated that they were sure that laser had been proved to be harmful to patients with wet macular degeneration. So anecdotal results are important, but they certainly don't tell the story. And Stuart Fine has been perhaps the greatest ophthalmic controlled studies uh, that we have. For those of you who are tuning in, you are listening to The Revealing Retina on ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. I am Dr. Roy Levitt, and I'm speaking with Dr. Cliff Ratner, and we are discussing wet macular degeneration.
Cliff, how do you decide in your office with a patient whether to use Avastin or Lucentis? Uh, it's a very individual decision. In my particular geographic area, the vast majority of retinal specialists use Avastin. Lucentis is certainly available, but there are very significant problems with reimbursement. There are problems with the cost factor. Remember that in order to use Lucentis, you have to pay for it first. You may have to wait anywhere between 45 to 90 days to be reimbursed. So if you have a large volume of patients who are using Lucentis, you could actually be in the hole, so to speak, on a monthly basis of many tens of thousands of dollars. Not to mention the fact that patients frequently have 20% copay if they're covered by Medicare, and 20% of that $2,000 is $400. So it could be $400 a month to the patient, and that doesn't count the fee for the injection itself. That's just the medication. Uh, Again, anecdotal evidence is not conclusive, but many, I would say at this point, millions of doses of Avastin have been given across the country in the last four years. It clearly works. There's no question about that. The only question is whether or not it works with a few percentage points of difference in efficacy from Lucentis. It would be lovely if Genentech would sponsor a controlled trial of one against the other. Uh, The problem is I think that it's not perhaps in Genentech's best interest to do that because they have a very expensive drug that they're trying to promote rather than use the very inexpensive drug that they simply won't make any money on. Have you run into any complications with intravitreal injection in your office? Personally, complications have been exceedingly rare. Depending upon the literature that you read, the rate of endophthalmitis or infection in the eye from an injection is anywhere between 1 in 1,000 to 1 in 5,000. I have not had a case of endophthalmitis, although I suppose if I continue to give injections at my current rate, it's only a matter of time that I will give 5,000 injections and perhaps wind up with one case of endophthalmitis. I have had one or two cases of intraocular inflammation, sterile inflammation, that responded to conservative treatment with Avast. And in those patients, I have switched to Lucentis thereafter, and they have done well. But in general, the injections are extremely well tolerated. I might add, by the way, that given standard technique, which is to use a topical anesthetic or a subconjunctival anesthetic, the injections are quite painless. What have you found with this new treatment of wet macular degeneration? How has it affected how your office runs? Well, what I tell patients, and I think what we're all uh, saying to patients now, is that instead of having a serious and potentially blinding disease that we can do nothing about, they have a serious but potentially treatable disease that we can treat quite effectively, but it's really a chronic condition. And what I mean by that is that we can think about it as almost any other chronic condition. For example, diabetes. They have to return at regular intervals. Each patient has to come in between four and at every four to six week interval. We have to examine them. We have to determine whether or not any leakage is present. And we have new technology with which to do that. But if leakage is present, we have the option then of offering them additional Avastin or additional Lucentis. And each practice has its own protocol for doing that. There is no national standard in terms of how often these injections are given. And I have spoken with quite a number of my colleagues. And what is striking about this is that there is no one way to do this. We all agree that if leakage is present, 
a reinjection is called for. What we don't agree on is if no leakage is present, do you give a maintenance dose in order to prevent additional leakage or bleeding in the future? It makes for a fairly busy office, and although if you educate the patient properly by telling them that they do have a chronic condition, that they will need follow-up perhaps for the rest of their lives, each patient encounter can be fairly brief. I want to thank Dr. Cliff Ratner for speaking with us about wet macular degeneration. I'm your host, Dr. Roy Levitt, and I'd like to thank you for listening to The Revealing Retina, presented by the American Retina Foundation. For information, visit us online at AmericanRetina.org. We welcome your questions and comments about this or any other show. Please send your email to xm at reachmd.com or visit us at www.reachmd.com. Our new on-demand and our new podcast features will allow you access to our entire program library. Again, thanks for listening.